Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Good morning, church. Um, I just realized I have an apple on my screen and I'm preaching out of Genesis. What's the <laughs> yeah, a little inside joke there. Um, so um, it, it really is such a privilege to... Uh, to be with you guys this morning, and um, yeah, we are taking a little bit of a break from the relationship series called Great Expectations, Um, and I mean, there's been such great tools there, so if you have some time, go catch up on those, but uh, I I get to preach on something far more light and uplifting, and and that is um, humility, Um, so uh, on a serious note, I want to give us one quick minute uh, to turn to the person next to you um, and maybe just tell them what you think humility means. Uh, Please don't comment on their opinion, but just ask, what do you think humility means? Give you one minute. I've uh, I've heard some nervous laughter. Um, How many of you thought that was an easy question? How many of you thought that was a hard question? So to those that thought it was easy, the sermon is definitely for you. (laughs) But for those of you who thought it was hard, you obviously also need to understand what humility is. So um, we, um, yeah, it it, it is a hard one. Humility is a very hard one. And I, before I start, like I, I'm going to be, I've been, I, I came across this book about, I think it was three or four years ago. Uh, it's, it's written by Andrew Murray, and I read, I think, two quotes in my sermon out of this book. Um, and as you can see, it's small, and it's really not a big read, but your hard punches come in small books. Um, yeah, and, and I want to just tell a little bit of a story, what happened to me while reading this book. Um, Andrew Murray says that you, you can't ask God to humble you. Scripture says that you need to humble yourself. Uh, but you can ask God for opportunities to humble you uh, or to, to humble yourself, right? So um, I was reading this book, and the one morning I was very brave to pray that prayer, Lord, give me an opportunity to humble myself today. Um, and I went to work, and uh, back at Brandt, who, uh, they're here with their beautiful baby boy. Uh, we we lived together and everything, and we had this ritual on a Tuesday. It was Pasta Tuesday. And uh, we ordered, and, and I mean, we were starving, and we open up the pasta, and something's not right. There's this funky smell, and we don't know if it's off chicken or off cream, or we don't know what it is, but something's not right. And so Bibi leans in, and he says, come smell this. And as I lean in, he literally taps me on the back of the head and pushes my entire face into this disgusting off chicken cream. And, and, I, and, and it's obviously a touch and go because he knows the next reaction of Louis is to chase him down and to kill him. Um, and as he runs and I try to take my foot to catch him, I slip and I fall smack bang on my back with my face filled with cream. And I remember 
I was lying there, and the Holy Spirit was like, do you remember what you prayed this morning? <laughs> do you remember what you asked me? Um, and, 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 and in fact, like, you know, now in retrospect, it, it was actually a beautiful thing, which the Lord really taught me not to take myself too serious, which was very good. So, so humility. Let me pray for us uh, just before I read for us. Uh, Lord God, we, Lord, we want to come before you this morning, Lord Jesus. And uh, yeah, Lord, we want to realize, Lord God, that the breath we have in our lungs, Lord, everything that we are, Lord Jesus, the, the sun coming up this morning, Lord, everything being in its place is because of you, Lord. Um, and we, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that as your, as your children, Lord God, that we have the massive privilege of being able to call you our Father, Lord. And Lord, I, I just pray, Lord, as this word goes out this morning, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, um, that you would first show us who you are, Lord. That we would first look to you, Lord Jesus, and I pray that our hearts would then respond to that, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you... Um, yeah, that it is your kindness that leads to our repentance, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would see your love and your kindness and your humility, Lord, throughout this entire word. And we thank you so much for that. Amen. Um, if you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, I'm going to be reading out of Genesis 2 from verse 7, if you want to go there with me. So just to give some context, um, we obviously know that Genesis 1, God creates the heaven and the earth and all the living beings, um, and, and then we are in Genesis 2, and we sort of get a little bit of an insight into God designing man. And I'm reading from verse 7, and it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So these three verses just speaks of where we come from, how we are designed. Um, and so, so I'm just going to pull a few points out of these few verses. And the first point is Adam or a man is formed out of the dust of the ground. Um, and I don't know if that humbles you, but that humbles me, that we are formed out of the dust of the ground. But then... The second point is that just in Genesis 1, God doesn't just take the dust of the ground and says, let's just form it. In Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God takes something that is so low, like the dust of the ground, and he chooses to give it his form. He chooses to shape it into his image, into his likeness. And, and then, as if the likeness and the image is not enough, God then takes that which is his, his breath, and he breathes it into man. And it says, and he became a living creature. 
And it then goes on in verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What a horrible command. (laughs) But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And, and this is a very uh, well-known piece of scripture, but, um, you know, we, we saw like God creates man. And not only does he create man, he creates man in his own image. And then he breathes his life into man. But then God also takes man and he places him over his entire creation. And he gives him this freedom. He says, you are allowed to eat of everything except one. Like, you are allowed to have the 99 except the one. And, um, and, and, and it's, the, the question we might ask is, like, why? Why does God prevent man from having that one tree? Um, and, and the reality is, is that because we have just seen that God forms us into his likeness, breathes his breath into us, places us above his creation to rule over it and to keep it. And so the one thing that keeps the difference between the creator and the creation is that one tree, that one rule. It is the one thing that brings in obedience versus God and versus man. And, and, you know, and if we put it into perspective, God is so gracious. He could have given us a thousand rules, but he gives one. Um, and it sort of makes me think of, you know, some of those animations. If you, like, walk, the, the character walks into a spaceship, and then there's all these lights and buttons and cool sliders, but then there's this big red button. And it usually has, like, a sticker under it that says, do not touch, or do not push. This one has, like, a little flip over it. And then you see the character starting to sweat, and, and he's like, maybe if, no. And he's like biting his hand. And he just can't resist. He gets to do everything else. But, but everything is not enough. Um, and, and we sort of see this play out in Genesis 3. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast for the, of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took off its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so when, when we read these two chapters, there's quite a attention here um, because 
in Genesis 2, we see God's perfect design for man. We see God creating man into his own likeness. Um, we see him placing man above his creation, right? But above all else, he creates man to live alongside its creator. And, and the thing that keeps that relationship of creator versus creation in place is, like we said, that one rule. That one rule, how man can submit unto God, is by obeying God, by obeying his command of do not eat of this one tree. And, and therefore, it is creation's privilege of living in perfect humility under its creator. And, and I think the question is like, but why, why do we need to show humility? Or why do we need to show obedience towards God? And I think that's also something we need to see in this because everything up until here that man has received, he has contributed nothing to. It has all been a gift. Everything has been a gift. Everything God says, even the rule he gives, even the blessings and the freedom he gives is nothing we have received. We, have, we haven't deserved a single thing of that. And, and so God uses that 1% to keep us close to him. He uses that one rule to keep us submitted to him. But in Genesis 3, we see Satan coming to challenge that 1%. He comes to challenge the very thing that keeps us in the place of creation, in the place of humility, in the place of obedience. He comes to challenge that with pride. And, and I want to just have a look at three points that Satan comes and challenges and how he leads Eve into the deception of pride. Um, and, and the first one is he challenges God's word. He says to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he twists God's word. God said, you may eat of every tree in the garden except the one. And he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan doesn't challenge Eve's word. He doesn't add, challenge Adam's word. He challenged what God said. And, and this is often for us the first place where we are tempted to fall into pride. Is when God's word says something and we say, did God actually? I'm sure the Lord didn't mean that. You know, I'm, I'm sure in the context of the Old and Testament and, you know, if we put it in context, it, it, it definitely didn't mean that. And, and we don't challenge and see God's word as the highest authority because he is the highest authority. So by implication, that means his word is the highest authority. And so whenever we challenge God's word, we are saying that, Lord, we know best, or we know more. But Eve actually passes this challenge, and she says, no, God did not say that. He said that we may eat of all the trees except the tree in the midst of the garden. And she says, God said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Satan comes with number two, and now he challenges that word quite directly, not beating around the bush anymore. 
But not only does he challenge God's word, he challenge, challenges God's character and his heart towards man. He tries to let Eve doubt God's heart and his motives for man. And he says, you will not surely die. So he's calling God a liar. And he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and we've seen in Genesis 2, man's created in God's image. Man's received the breath of God, placed over all of creation. Adam and Eve is already like God. We've already been made in His likeness, already received His breath of life. And, and what, what Satan is doing is he's painting this picture that God is jealous and insecure and He didn't tell you this because if you know this, then you will be better than Him. And, and because of that, because Satan is, is, gets Eve to doubt God's word and his, his heart and his motive towards us as man, she falls into the one thing, and that is discontentment. And no longer is the 1%, no longer is the 99% enough. No longer is 99% enough for us. We have to have the one. Because when Satan says to her that your creator is no longer enough, what he's telling her is like, you should be the creator. And he says, and he says to her, your eyes, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and the, the hard thing of this is that Eve, Adam and Eve has already seen only goodness. They've only seen God's goodness. And Satan says to her, your eyes will be opened to see good and evil. And I, I think like for us sitting here today, we ask the question, why do you even want your eyes to be opened to evil? And, and that's the 1%. You know, and this contentment, what it does is it makes us want to swap places. And we want to take the responsibilities of God, the things of God, we want to bring it down to our level and say, no, no, I want to know everything. <laughs> and Andrew, Andrew Murray, and, and the other thing is that what Satan doesn't tell them, he doesn't tell them to what reality your eyes will be open to if your eyes are opened. And Andrew Murray says this in his book. He says, When the old serpent who had been cast out of heaven for his pride, whose whole nature was pride, spoke temptation into Eve's ear, those, word, those words carried with them the very poison of hell. And when she listened and yielded her desire and her will to the prospect of being like God, knowing good and evil, the poison entered into her soul destroying forever the blessed humility and dependence upon God that would have been our everlasting inheritance and happiness. Her life and the life of the race that sprang from her became corrupted to its very root with that most terrible of all sins and curses, Satan's pride. And all the wretchedness 
of which this world has been the scene, all its wars and bloodshed among the nations, all its selfishness and suffering, all its vain ambitions and jealousies, all its broken hearts and embittered lives, with all its daily unhappiness, have their origin in what this cursed pride, our own or that of others, has brought upon us. It is pride that made redemption necessary. It is, it is from our pride that we need, above everything else, to be redeemed. And so this really paints a, a, a very strong picture of how since the garden, pride has taken root in man's life. And we, we see it play out so quickly. I mean, I, I wish I could cover everything, but we instantly see when God comes, Adam and Eve already try to cover themselves up, man trying to re- take responsibility for their own sins, pride. God says, who did this? Adam says, it's my wife. Not owning up, pride. The wife says, no, it's the serpent. And in a way, they blame God. It's the wife you gave me. It's the serpent you created. It's all your fault. And, and we see pride run through the whole Old Testament until we see Jesus in, in the new. And, and he is our redeemer. Today we know that he is our redeemer. And, and the, the thing of, of Jesus is he, is he is our creator, but he doesn't come and conquer pride as a king. He doesn't come as a creator and, you know, submits creation under him. He doesn't come in his glory and says, bow down before me. He chooses to redeem us in a way we never expected or even deserve. He comes in humility. Um, and and Philippi- Philippians 2 so beautifully portrays this. It says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, I'm, I'm reading from verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be used to his advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus, in the form of God, we see this humility of heaven, and that's where the title comes from. Um, And why I called it the humility of heaven is like, Jesus being in the form of God, we usually see Jesus born into a man, into a manger, and that's humble. But we forget that Jesus was God, and he had to humble himself in heaven to become a man. He exercised humility even before we could even see it on earth. And, and he clothes himself with this humility, and he, instead 
coming as God, He lays down His rights. He empties Himself and takes the form of a servant. And, and, and the, the crazy thing is, like the Scripture says that, um, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Sorry, no, not there. But emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And, and the Greek, that likeness almost means nature. You see, Jesus didn't come to his perfect creation. He came to a fallen world and took on the nature of a fallen man. He came into a world where there's temptation and pride and bitterness and suffering. That is the nature which he chose. He didn't just take a bodily form of man like we are standing. He took on a form of weakness. And it says that, it says that, um, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he chooses to, to come to earth as a servant, to the creator becoming the creation. And in Genesis, we saw God says, let us make man in our image. And in Philippians 2, we see that flipped around. And God says, let me be made in man's image. Let me come in man's image and serve my own creation. And as if that obedience is not enough, he then comes to serve. He comes as a slave. And, and, and what Jesus basically came and did is he came the way we were created in Genesis. He comes fully dependent on God. He lives a life fully dependent and surrendered unto God. And it says it, says it to us how he, how he did this, how he displayed this humility. It says he humbled himself. By becoming obedient. Jesus' humility was running hand in hand with his obedience to the Father, with his obedience to the Father. And it says that he's obedient, even obedient to death. He was so he was so sold out for his father's will. He was so obedient and so dependent on God's will that not even death could break his obedience. And not even death on a cross, the most shameful, most humiliating death. Hung on a cross, naked and shamed and scorned, yet still he chooses to submit unto his Father. Still on that cross, he chooses to display humility. To the point where he cries out and says, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And on that cross, Jesus restores the relationship, the relationship which we lost in the garden. He restores the relationship between creator and creation. And he offers that through his humility. Andrew Murray says it beautifully. It says, his humility is our salvation. And, he, and then he says, our salvation is humility. 
and 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 then we see and that's why uh, uh, and then we see God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and even so even Jesus is being exalted to the right hand of the Father is because of his humility because he was willing to come down this low, to the lowest of the low, God picked him up to the highest of the high and placed him above everything. And, and I think the question for us is like, what does that mean for us as his creation? What does that mean for us as Jesus followers? Um, and Paul sort of instructs that at the start of, of Philippians, and it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, Paul says as you pursue humility, keep in mind this. Keep in mind Jesus' humility. Keep in mind Jesus' absolute dependence upon God. Keep that in mind. And as we pursue our Creator, let us not forget what He came and did for us when He was creation. So let us model Jesus' life on earth. And Andrew Murray says this in his book. He says, Is it any wonder that the Christian life is so often weak and fruitless? when the very root of the Christian life is neglected or unknown? Is it any wonder that the joy of salvation is so little felt when that by which Christ brings it is so seldom sought? Until a humility that rests in nothing less than the end and death of self and which gives up all the honor of men as Jesus did to seek the honor that comes from God alone, which absolutely makes and counts itself nothing, that God may be all, that the Lord alone may be exalted. Until such a humility is what we seek in Christ above our chief joy and welcome at any price, there is a very little hope of faith that will conquer the world. I cannot too greatly impress upon my readers and the need of realizing the lack there is today of humility within Christian circles. There is so little of the meek and lowly Lamb of God in those who are called by His name. Let us consider how our lack of love, indifference to the needs and feelings of others, even sharp comments and hasty judgments that are often excused as being honest and straightforward, are thwarting the effect of the influence of the Holy Spirit on others. Manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. Pride creeps in almost everywhere, and the assemblies of the saints are not exceptions. Let's ask ourselves, what would be the effect if all of us were guided by the humility of Jesus? That the cry of our whole heart, night and day, would be, oh, for the humility of Jesus in myself and all around me. Let us honestly fix our heart on our lack of humility, that which has been revealed in the likeness of Christ's life in the whole character of his redemption and realize how little we know of Christ and his salvation. Study the humility of Jesus. This is the secret, the hidden root of redemption. 
Believe with your whole heart that Christ, whom God has given you, will enter in to dwell and work within you and make you what the Father would have you. If I can ask the band to come up, please. Um, and so, to take us back to, to Genesis, I think we, we are faced we are faced with the same thing, that tree of life and that tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have a yes and we have a no. And humility will cost every single one of us a price. Humility is expensive. And if we, that means if we say yes to God, we say no to the world and we say no to ourselves. If we say yes to all the glory goes to the Lord, then we say no to our own glory. But there is a beautiful promise. In all of this, there's the most beautiful promise because God promises that whoever humbles himself, he himself will exalt them. And so it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And because of Jesus' humility, at the end of the day, when, when the Lord comes, the Lord God will place every single person, every single knee and every single tongue, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth will be placed under Christ because of the humility that he showed. That is why God has lifted him that high. And we have an opportunity this morning to, to bow our knee in humility. Because if you want to bow your knee in that day, it will be bowed in humiliation. It is a very hard reality, but every knee will bow. Whether it is today or whether it is at the end of the earth, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And in closing, I just want to read this, this cry of, of David in Psalm 131. And he says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. And I, and I, I just want to pray this over us. I think if we look at those points of pride, challenging God's word, doubting his heart and his character, and discontentment, I think every single one of us can place ourselves in one of those areas. And where we allow the enemy to come in and deceive us in one of those points, we allow pride. And so I'm just, I'm just going to pray for us and just as the band plays, I just want us to, whichever one you place yourself in one of those cat categories, whether it would be you are not believing the word of the Lord in a certain area of your life because of the cost. Or whether the Lord says that I am with you and I will never forsake you and you don't believe it. Or the discontentment of like, Lord, I don't have enough. 
pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would be like David said, that we would be this child fully satisfied, but yet so dependent. We're just a child in our mother's arms, in our father's arms. And we have no lack. I'm just going to pray for us. Lord God, we, Lord, we are humbled, Lord Jesus, that you chose to create us in your image. That you chose to give us your breath of life, Lord. And Lord, it, it breaks our hearts, Lord Jesus, seeing how we as your creation, Lord Jesus, disappointed you, Lord. And how we took that for granted, Lord God. But your son, Lord, came as humility itself and showed us, Lord, how, it, how to walk before you. How to humble ourselves before you. How to be dependent on you, Lord. And Lord, for us as your children, Lord Jesus, it is our highest call to become like your son to be like Jesus, Lord. And I pray that when the world looks at us as believers, that the first thing they would say is that there's humility. And you invite us, Lord. You say, come to me and learn from me for I am I'm low, I'm gentle and humble in heart. Thank you, Lord, that you are gentle with us in the journey of, of humbling ourselves, Lord. I pray, Lord, that there would be a determination in our hearts to bow our knee before you, to submit our wills and our desires unto you, Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.